Father God, what a what a wonderful day it is. What a wonderful time of worship. And we have much to look forward to today. But um, I pray at this time uh, we would be focused in on your word now and uh, looking forward to what you have to say to us today. And that it would be a, um, just a, a time of looking forward, looking up. And uh, our hearts would be uplifted and challenged. And this would be a time that's truly uh, honoring and pleasing to you, God. So thank you again for the privilege of proclaiming your truth and uh, this time that we have together in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, please turn with me back to Mark chapter 13. The famous Olivet Discourse, which is also found in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And as we're turning there, uh, some of us may be familiar with some of the numerous doomsday predictions in the last 2,000 years after Christ came and promised to return. Um, I just want to share a few of those from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, The Great Fire of London. I don't know if anyone's heard of that, but because the Bible calls 666 the number of the beast, many Christians in 17th century Europe feared the end of the world in the year 1666. And that was the year of the Great London Fire. It lasted from September 2nd to the 5th of that year. Destroyed much of the city, including a bunch of churches and a lot of homes. Many saw this as a fulfillment of the end of the world prophecy. Uh, But it turns out, even though lots of property was lost, actually the death toll of the fire was remarkably low. Reportedly only 10 people. This was not quite the end of the world. Uh, There's another one by this woman named Joanna Southcott. She was a self-described prophetess. Um, And when she was 42 years old, uh, she reported hearing voices that predicted future events, including the crop failures and famines of 1799 and 1800 there in England. So she started publishing her own books and eventually developed a following of of as many as 100,000 people. In 1813, she announced that in the following year, she would give birth to the second Messiah, whose arrival would signal the last days of the earth. And despite her being 64 years old and, as she told her doctors, a virgin, she died in 1814, no baby born. Last one I want to share with you, which is um, incredible. It's called the Prophet Hen of Leeds. Hen, H-E-N, you heard that right. In 1806, a domesticated hen in Leeds, England, appeared to lay eggs inscribed with the message, Christ is coming. Great numbers of people reportedly visited the hen and began to despair of the coming judgment day. But it was soon discovered that the eggs were not, in fact, prophetic messages, but the work of their owner, who had been writing on the eggs in corrosive ink and then reinserting them into the poor hen's body. As what Jesus described in the Olivet Discourse as birth pangs, you remember from last week, as they get stronger and increase and become more intense, these doomsday predictions continue, even in more modern days. And um, let me just share with you some of the predictions as noted by Pastor Clint Archer in his blog. Um, A Harvard professor who founded Earth Day said in 1970 that scientists are almost unanimous that global cooling will destroy mankind by the year 2000. 
And then in 1982, Carl Sagan, the famous Carl Sagan, said that by 1995, 80% of Earth's species will be extinct. But then, in 1985, the New York Times predicted that the polar ice caps would be gone by the year 2000. And you guys, are, some of you remember all that hoopla during Y2K, right? The end of the world's coming. Um, in 1989, the UN Environmental Office said that there would be entire nations underwater within 10 years, okay, by 1999. Then in 2002, the UK Guardian said that unless global warming is reversed, there will be a global starvation epidemic by 2012. And lastly, in 2009, Senator John Kerry said that the polar ice caps would be gone by the year 2013. Obviously, none of these worldly alarms and doomsday predictions have come to pass, but, but there is a real, legitimate, existential threat to our world, which is predicted in the Bible. It's known as the tribulation or the great tribulation, a time which is yet future, which Jesus foretells in the Olivet Discourse that we started looking at last Sunday. And so one could argue that these birth pangs that he spoke of are getting more frequent. They're increasing in their intensity in the last century or so, maybe world wars and all the rest. But Jesus warned of not being misled. Don't be misled by false messiahs of hearing of wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters, famines, earthquakes. All these things are like birth pangs. The pains and sufferings and persecutions are going to come. And these tribulations, when they get most intense and almost unimaginably unbearable, they will eventually give way to the great event of Christ's second coming and the new birth uh, or the birth of a, of a new age called the Millennial Kingdom. Okay, so this sketch of the future that Jesus gives in that first part of the Olivet Discourse in, in Mark chapter 13, um, last Sunday, it starts to become more detailed in today's passage, starting in verse 14. Okay, the, those verses in 5 through 13 that we looked at give way to an event that is quite specific, and the Lord is describing it now. He's starting to describe these particular days which must happen before his coming. And he says they're worse than any in the history of the world. So today, as we go through this passage, we're going to be looking at some other scriptures as well, which foretell of the same apocalyptic time in the future. I'm calling this the awfully great tribulation. That's our our subtitle for the series, um, which started last week. The sermon series is being prepared for Jesus's return. And so today is part two. And I'm not going to be able to say everything there, there is to say about the tribulation and, and all the details there. But hopefully we give some helpful information and provide a sufficient overview of what's happening. And I don't want us to forget, though, the principle, okay, the, the principle of this, the theme of this is that we should not just be knowing these things about the future to, to satisfy our curiosity or just to get all of our eschatology ducks in a row and, and um, know all the different um, just, uh, views and perspectives of it, even though we're going to try to do that some. Um, this is about our readiness, okay? our spiritual readiness and preparation and sanctification before the Lord comes to take us home, right? Before he returns and, and takes us with him, before we pass away, um, or before the end comes, like whatever comes first, 
We want to be ready. The Lord is exhorting us to be ready as believers, to be prepared for his return. We want to be found believing in faith, and we want to be found faithful in service and all the rest that he's called us to. So our, our passage today is Mark 13 as we continue. And this is uh, verses 14 to 23, okay, the awfully great tribulation. So if you are able to stand with me, please do that as we honor God's word. I'm going to start in verse 14 of Mark chapter 13, continuing from last week. He says in verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. Why? For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now. And never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Please be seated. So we have two very just simple points today, and uh, you have that in your bulletin there. Uh, the first one is the awfully great tribulation, okay, which is the, the title for, for today's sermon. And the second one is the abomination of desolation. Okay, so we're going to cover the the broad first and then get into the specific. And um, I really hope this is interesting and riveting and fascinating, but not just that. I hope we keep in mind, once again, the purpose of all this. Um, But also, maybe I'll I'll just give you a quick warning right now. This might go a little bit longer than usual. We'll do our best to to keep it um, manageable. But um, lots to cover here. And again, I'm not going to be able to cover everything. All right. So the first thing is the awfully great tribulation. There's a a bit of a shift here, but he says in verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation, okay, we got to, like I said last week, we got to look at verse 19. He says, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Okay, never going to be as awful, horrific days such as this. We're going to look at that um, in a moment, but... Let me quickly give you some other terms and uh, references for the tribulation period in the Bible. Okay, it's it's um, throughout uh, the 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 word, but um, it's sometimes called different things. Okay, so the day of the Lord. Okay, when you read that in the Old Testament um, prophecies and Old Testament scriptures, the day of the Lord. Lots of times it's referring to the tribulation period. Let me just give you a few references. Okay, Isaiah 30 verses 23 to 25. Isaiah 34, 1 through 8. Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. Joel 2, verses 28 to 32. The next chapter in Joel, chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. 
number of times the day of the Lord is used. Again, in Zephaniah 3, verse 8, Zephaniah 3, verse 8, and also 16 to 20, verses 16 to 20, that same chapter, and also Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 21. And these are special interventions of God in human history. And some of those have been fulfilled, and some are yet unfulfilled. Okay? So just keep that in mind as you come across them in, in those scriptures. Um, another very specific term for the tribulation is found in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Okay, and you've got to read that passage, verses 1 through 8. We don't have time for it today. But Jeremiah 30, verse 7 is called the time of Jacob's distress. Okay, the time of Jacob's distress or the time of Jacob's trouble um, in some translations. Okay, this is an unparalleled time of trouble and suffering that's going to come upon Israel. All right? um, another phrase that's used uh, sometimes particularly about the tribulation is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is used, obviously, in, in many different contexts and instances. But in Zephaniah, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, there's this near fulfillment of the wrath of God, of Babylon coming. And then there's also the, the greater fulfillment um, in the tribulation. It will involve the whole earth. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18. Um, and then it's called the tribulation and the great tribulation. It's even hinted at. As far back as Deuteronomy 4, verse 30. Deuteronomy 4, verse 30. The tribulation, it's there. Uh, some translations say distress in Deuteronomy 4, 30. Again, you've got to read the surrounding verses. But um, the Olivet Discourse, obviously Matthew 24 and Mark 13, which we're in. And then Revelation 7, 14 also uses that word great tribulation. Those are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Some commentators think that um, when the word tribulation is used, it can refers to the entire seven-year period. We'll, we'll look at that in a moment. Um, and then the great tribulation refers to like the last half of that seven-year period. Okay? Not sure if I totally agree with that or not, but just uh, throwing that out there. Let's, this leads us to the last part, which was our scripture reading this morning. Okay? The, great, the, the tribulation is also referred to as the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? So why don't we turn there? Um, we're going to... Look at this for a few moments. Daniel chapter 9. And I wanted to just get that in our, our minds and our consciousness. So it was our scripture reading this morning. Daniel chapter 9. This is an incredible prophecy. Daniel is informed by the angel Gabriel. He's called a man here, but he's, he's in the form of a man. But it's the angel Gabriel. And the, the Gabriel tells Daniel that God is going to have 70 weeks of special dealings with Israel in order to accomplish some things. And so verse 24 through 27 is, uh, we're going to camp out here just for a, a few moments. Daniel 9, verse 24 to 27. But 24 says again there that 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Right? This is Gabriel talking to Daniel. To finish the transgression, make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Notice this is an exclusively Jewish passage. It pertains specifically to Israel. Um, once again, Gabriel says, decreed for your people and your holy cities. Talking to Daniel, uh, the Jew. So this is Daniel's people. Daniel's holy city, Jerusalem. Seventy weeks. In context, this is not a literal 70 weeks. 
right? Roughly over a year. But rather it's 70 units of seven. 70 units of seven. Hopefully you're following this in your, in your Bibles, okay? So one week amounts to seven years. So 70 weeks equals 490 years, right? 70 times seven, okay? One week, seven years, 70 weeks equals 490 years. So the prophecy here is speaking of 490 years of God's special dealings with Israel. In those 70 weeks, or 490 years, six things are to happen according to God's decree. Okay, In verse 24, and I just read them to you, so I won't do it again. But just put a little note in your mind. The first three there um, have to do with the first advent of Christ. And so in some way... The transgression was finished. The end of sin was happened to make atonement for iniquity. Those things, in some fashion, happened with Jesus' death on the cross okay, and his resurrection. But the second three are at his second advent. You bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, no more extra biblical stuff, and to announce the most, uh, anoint the most holy place, the most holy place. There's no most holy place in the church. This is speaking to Israel. Okay, so verse 25, he says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Right, so there's a decree that was given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And this happened around 445 B.C. You can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2. And this, is, uh, this decree was given by Artaxerxes, that Medo-Persian king, who was Nehemiah's boss, right? Nehemiah was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. So the first seven weeks, roughly is 49 years, okay? It spanned the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the temple, the walls, okay? This is, this is like um, Nehemiah's career time span, right? Along with Zerubbabel and Ezra, who were leading that whole thing. Right? Rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, rebuild the people. That's what they were called to do. So that's 49 years. Okay, I want you to follow me. Okay, 62 weeks follows that. So Gabriel says seven weeks and, and 62 weeks. So 62 weeks is another 434 years. So when you do the math, 49 plus 434 is 483. Okay? So, um, yeah, this is not quite calculus, but you kind of got to put your math, uh, math uh, mind caps on here. Okay, so 434 years is 62 weeks. Put that together with 49, it's 483 from the time of Nehemiah until the coming of the Messiah. Okay, so this was fulfilled on Palm Sunday. It happened on 9 Nisan, A.D. 30. Okay, when Jesus Messiah rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, this is just a few days removed from Mark 13 where we are in the Olivet Discourse, this is the triumphal entry. It's called that because the people were hailing him as the Messiah King. Right? So the prophecy continues. What is going to happen to the Messiah? Verse 26. After those 62 weeks, after those 434 years, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Okay, the Messiah is going to be killed. Cut off. That refers to death. He will seem to have nothing. He's been crucified. He's been executed. And then it says, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, this, that, 
that people of the prince is talking about the Romans. And the prince is not Jesus here. It's talking about Titus. Okay, this was fulfilled when the Roman army led by Titus destroyed the temple in A.D. 70 that we talked about last week. Okay? So all of this is happening. Just by the way, when it says flood there at the end of verse 26, I know some of you are curious when we did the scripture reading. That's not talking about a water flood. Okay, Literally, it's, it, it's um, Jerusalem's end in the overflowing. It's talking about the extensive ruin and destruction uh, that happens uh, when the, the temple was destroyed and the city was destroyed. It says, even to the end, there will be war desolations. Okay, The struggle was great in that battle. Uh, we described it a bit last week. When uh, in A.D. 70, this, the, the, the Romans um, ransacked the, the temple and the, the, the city. And so the result was severely desolate conditions, right? They just left nothing to chance. So we don't even, can't even place it today. So all that happened in the 69 weeks, that 483 years since the time of Nehemiah. And so there's 70 weeks, isn't there? That leaves one more week. So this is referred to as Daniel's 70th week. Verse 27, the first part of it, says this. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. He, this certain person, is going to make a covenant with Israel. And I'm going to leave out the rest for now. We'll get to the second part in the abomination of desolation in a few minutes. But one week, okay, this is the event that marks the beginning, the start of the seven-year Okay, this one-week tribulation period. Someone, who we're going to get to in the second point, is going to make a covenant with Israel. Okay, it's like a treaty with the nation of Israel. And it seems like a good thing. This person at first is going to seem like the protector of Israel, but in the end, it turns out, he turns out to be the, the great persecutor of Israel. So this is like what happens in the tribulation. Okay? So when this momentous Daniel 9.27 event occurs, that's the beginning of the tribulation. As history bears out, the 69 weeks have run their course. The Messiah has been cut off. The Jerusalem temple has been destroyed. But this final seven years of God's special dealings with Israel have not taken place yet. They are yet future. And they're not going to begin until this covenant, this treaty is made with Israel. So there's a gap of time between the 69th week, the end of the 69th week, until the 70th. Daniel chapter 9 doesn't explicitly say that there will be a gap. Jesus doesn't mention any gap in in Mark 13 in the Olivet Discourse. But this gap has now spanned almost 2,000 years. From Christ's death and the temple destruction in AD 70 until now. The 69 weeks, that 483 years are over. But the final week, the 70th week, that seven-year period has not yet happened. So right now, as we speak... We're we're living in that gap, living in it. This is the church age. So the question is, when will this tribulation start? When will this treaty, this covenant, take place that we read about in Daniel chapter 9? Well, God doesn't tell us, and Jesus doesn't say. But we do see that this 70th week prophecy was particular to and for Israel. It's not the church so when you put all of this together, folks, um, all this information with the passages that, that teach about the rapture, which we're going to get to in part five of this series in a few weeks, the rapture of the church, I believe and we in our camps believe that the rapture will happen before the tribulation. 
That's why we're called pre-tribbers, right? So pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. We're called pre-trib because we believe that the, the rapture will happen before this tribulation period. But the point is this. The greater point is this. God still has a plan and program for Israel. Okay? Promises and prophecies yet to be fulfilled. His dealings with Israel are distinct from his dealings with the church. Okay? This is part of what's called dispensationalism. And again, I think part five is when we're going to talk more extensively about that. Maybe. But listen, whatever dispensation it is, whatever covenant it is, whatever testament it is, um, there's only one way of salvation. And that's always been the same. Okay? Simply through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in God based on the death of Jesus Christ to come. Okay? So in the Old Testament, it was, it was yet ahead. In, in our time, it, it was Christ's resurrection, uh, death and resurrection is, is behind. And so either way, it's the same way of salvation. So believing Israelites and the church-age believers are all God's children. Okay? All God's chosen. And yet... Yet, there's a distinction between Israel and the church in God's program. So God will fulfill his promises to Israel as he always has. That's exactly what the primary purpose for this tribulation period is, which, again, we'll get to in a moment. The 70th week will, shall come to pass. Um, I do want to quickly turn to Revelation chapter 6, so can you turn there with me? Revelation chapter 6, as you're turning there, let me just give you a very quick breakdown of the book of Revelation, okay, because for some people it's just like this, um, this puzzle that is uh, incomprehensible, right? It's just like, why bother even reading it? There's all this stuff and everything. But um, let me just give you a rough outline of, of the book, okay? And, and I'll, I'll start by saying chapters 6 through 19 have to do with the tribulation, 6 through 19, a huge chunk of the book of Revelation um, involve and describe the tribulation period. But chapters 1 through 3 describe the church age. Okay? Chapters 1 through 3 is the church age. The next two chapters, 4 and 5, describe events in heaven. Okay? That's the other um, passage in Scripture. I read Isaiah 6, 3 this morning, right? Holy, holy, holy. Revelation 4, verse 8 is the other place in scripture where God is described as thrice holy, Revelation 4, 8. Okay, so chapters 4 and 5 is events in heaven. And then, like I said, chapters 6 through 19 is the tribulation. And this includes the, the seven seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Okay, all those judgments are described very specifically there. And then chapter 20 is the millennial kingdom. Chapter 20 is the millennial kingdom. And it ends with chapters 21 and 22, Eternity, or what's called the eternal state, right? So that's a, just a very, hopefully that just breaks it down a little bit for you so you can just, um, it's good to have a picture of what, what books are in the Bible, and so it doesn't seem so intimidating. So when you have that picture, it's helpful. But anyway, getting back to Revelation 6, what is the tribulation going to be like, right? And again, Jesus describes it in, in summary fashion um, in Mark 13 and, and Matthew 24, all of that discourse. Something that has not been from the beginning of the world and never will be. And something which no one would survive if God had not cut it short. So let me just look, let's look at some of the details real quick. Revelation chapter 6. First is the seven seals, right? This is the, the seals that enclose the, the scroll. Uh, it's like the title deed to the universe. 
and Jesus the Lamb is the only one who's worthy to, to undo it. And so seven seals are described there in um, chapter 6, verse 2. John, the Apostle John writes, I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. And so that's part of it. Verses 3 and 4 uh, describes a kind of World War III. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. And um, the next one, the third seal, is verses 5 and 6, a global famine. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So this major famine occurs. I'm not going to read the rest, but um, the rest of Revelation chapter 6, in verses 7 and 8, one quarter of the earth dies by war and disease and famine and by wild animals. Verses 9 through 11 is the next one, martyrdom of the tribulation believers. Uh, Verses 12 to 17, uh, that earthquake, I I read it last week, and cosmic disturbances. And then you skip over to chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. This is a set of seven more judgments called the seven trumpets. Okay, So you want to flip over to chapter 8. The seven trumpets now um, start. And uh, trumpets, it's like this call to to war and this this announcement of uh, pending judgment coming. Uh, Revelation 8, verse 7 says, The first sounded, first of these trumpets sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Verses 8 and 9, The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea had, and had life died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Verses 10 and 11. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, this poison. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. And lastly, verse 12, the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck. This is uh, literal supernatural uh, events happening, okay? And uh, so that a third of them would be darkened and and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. I mean, you you go on to Revelation chapter 9 and the rest of the trumpets and uh, scorpion-type locusts um, tormenting but don't kill. Uh, verses 13 and 15 of chapter 9, angels are released to kill a third of all people. And then you skip over to Revelation 15, and then a set of seven more judgments are, are pronounced. And this leads to the seven bowls. Okay? So if any of you were confused about what all these things are um, in, in Revelation, okay, they're basically pronouncements and predictions and prophecies of judgments to come. And so the bowls of wrath, Revelation 16, verse 2. I'm just going to read a few of these here. Revelation 16, verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. So sores all around. Verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, 
And it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. The seas turned to blood. Verse 4, fresh water also turned to blood. Third angel poured out his bowls into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. Verse 5, global warming, or, um, sorry, verses 8 and 9, let's skip over to there. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun. It was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat. Hey, you want to talk about global warming? And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Right? So I'm not going to read it again, but the rest of um, Revelation 16 talks about darkness. The very last river is dried up, and there's an army mustered for Armageddon. And then an earthquake is described with 100-pound hailstones coming from the sky. 100-pound hailstones. All right? So think back to what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13. Right? Uh, maybe now we can see why Jesus calls it a time of tribulation, even great tribulation. Like no other in world history, where people, especially the Jewish believers of the tribulation living at that time, they got to run to the hills to survive. And they got to bail. They got to take off. Don't leave anything. Don't, don't bother to get anything. Just run for the hills to live. It's so bad that if God did not shorten it to seven years, no one would survive. And uh, so I was talking about this with my wife uh, this week. Um, she suggested giving a, a Thanksgiving sermon, that the Thanksgiving sermon would be um, the reason for us to give thanks as the church, that we wouldn't be part of this great tribulation and we wouldn't have to take part in it. And I, I thought about it, but uh, it's going to be something else. But anyway, let's move on to the next thing. Okay? Primary purposes for the tribulation. Primary purposes. It's very important for us to understand. What is all this for? Okay, why is it? Who is it for? Okay, God always has good purposes for his plans. Always. Some of them he reveals to us, some he doesn't. But I'll say that there's at least two primary reasons for the tribulation. Okay, and the first one is this, to bring salvation to the nation of Israel, okay, preparing them for the messianic kingdom. We need to observe, once again, that the scriptures indicate the tribulation period has a definite Jewish character. Okay, for example, the church is not mentioned at all in Revelation 6 through 19. Okay? And we've seen from uh, some of those passages that I mentioned, Jeremiah 30, Daniel 9, Daniel 12, all of a discourse. Okay, God, God has, has a plan. And he's going to bring salvation to many in Israel. And the way he's going to do it is through this horrific persecution and oppression that is going to happen. And by the way, isn't this another pattern that we see in the Bible? Right? Remember the book of Judges, for instance? The stubborn, rebellious will of the Jewish people will be broken, and they will seek the Lord their God. They will come to saving faith in King Jesus. Uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, uh, just for your reference, Jesus said this would happen. Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39. Let me just uh, read that to you. And this is right before the Olivet Discourse. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said this would happen. 
they will confess the Christ eventually. And at the end times, they will bless his name. God is going to bring this about for Israel. He will accomplish his purposes in the end. And he declares through the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah, by the way, his name means the Lord remembers. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, again Israel, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is the weeping of genuine repentance. Zechariah 13, verse 9 says, They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, these are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. But it's going to take an awfully great tribulation. God will fulfill his word. He always has, he always will. Many Jewish people will believe and be saved during that time. God is going to use the 144,000 repentant Jews, Revelation chapter 7, and the two witnesses, Revelation 11, to accomplish this great work. It's just incredible. Literally, the very worst time in all of human history is when a multitude of people are going to be saved from their sins. God keeps his promises. He's going to save Israel because he's keeping his covenant with them. Right? All the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Paul says in in Romans 11, speaking of that, Romans 11 is a a great passage to uh, give more clarity. I wish we had more time. But Romans 11 and verse 25, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Listen, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The full deliverance of Israel happens ultimately when the Messiah returns. And the tribulation, this great tribulation, is leading to that awesome event. So, Jeremiah 31 Uh, Some of us know this as the New Covenant passage in the Old Testament, right? Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. God promised he would make that New Covenant with Israel. It was primarily to them. We as Gentiles get to take part in that as as part of the, the branches who are grafted in. But this was the salvation aspect of that Abrahamic covenant. All the way back, Genesis chapter 12. And it would be based on Christ's death on the cross. But listen, Israel has not entered, has never entered into the new covenant. Even to this day, they refuse. And it's going to take those terrible, awful events of the tribulation to break their wills and to open their darkened eyes and hearts to to repent. They will accept the Lord Jesus. They will come to him as their Messiah and Savior and bring bring them into the new covenant. But they're not going to be the only ones. Right? So the primary purpose is for Israel to come to return to the Lord. Right, But the second purpose of the tribulation is this. It's for judgment on wicked, unbelieving people and nations for their sinfulness. And it says judgment on wicked, unbelieving people and nations for their sinfulness. And just really quickly, throughout Scripture, God has promised 
to deal with all the nations, all the peoples, all the evil and wicked, sinful, unjust things that are happening in the world. God is going to deal with it. And he is holy. He is perfect. He is impartial. Every tongue, every tribe, every ethnicity, every color is going to be held responsible for their sins before the almighty creator for violating his rules, violating his standards. Everyone's going to pay. Everyone. God is going to deal with them all. And I'll just give you Psalm 2, verse 5. Jeremiah 25, verse 30 to 32. Zechariah 12, verse 3. New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 12. And um, we saw some of this in the seal and trumpet bowl judgments in, in Revelation, right, that I read to you. This is deserved retribution for their evil, which is another step in dealing with sin in preparation for the coming Messiah. This is part of the purpose of the the tribulation. And so, dear folks, listen. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, okay, this is part of the the Olivet Discourse, following Matthew 24. He says in in 25 that it's going to be like the days of Noah, where people are eating and drinking and married and being married and and doing their thing, and uh, it's going to come upon them suddenly. Noah's uh, building the ark for 120 years, right? and, and um, just preaching. And all of this is going, going to come upon people who are living in the tribulation times just like that. And so when I was reading those passages in Revelation, um, maybe some of you are thinking, what is it going to take for these people to come to their senses, for them to wake up? When are they going to repent and believe? Well, some of them will. Many of them will. They're going to receive salvation in the name of Christ And God is going to use that. But listen, others, others, even during that tumult and that chaos and that destruction and that awfulness, death all around, they're not going to come to their senses. They will refuse to to submit. They're going to stick to their guns. Just like other very dark and disturbing periods in in the last 2,000 years. There's been plagues, there's been famines, there's been earthquakes, there's been wars. There's been just uh, incredible things that have, been, that have happened in this last 2,000 years. And sometimes it's God shaking people, telling them to wake up and, and consider eternity. Maybe even just like this COVID era that we're in right now. But other people, they're going to they're gonna repent and some will not. Hey, even, even through personal struggles and hardships, they're going to hold on to their same beliefs. Same beliefs about God, same beliefs about Jesus, same beliefs about heaven and hell, same beliefs about salvation, same beliefs about other religions. They won't submit to Jesus' warnings and exhortations to be ready for his coming. The end is near, but we don't know how near. We don't know how long we're going to live. God and Jesus is calling you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ now. He's lovingly warning you that the end is coming. You don't know when that day is going to be, when you breathe your last breath. And he says, come and believe in me who died for your sins. He continues to call all men everywhere to repent and turn to Christ alone for forgiveness. Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to eternal life. He's the only way to be forgiven. And so... That is the great tribulation. And um, we've got to finish quickly here, but the abomination of desolation is the other thing that um, 
Mark 13, Jesus speaks of, right? He says it there, right in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not. We're talking about the signs of Christ's coming. He's answering the disciples' question. No one knows the day or the hour, even at that time, but there are signs. So the abomination of desolation is standing where it should not be. Um, It's very helpful to, you don't have to go there, but Matthew 24, verse 15, you should jot it down. I'm going to read it to you. This is the parallel passage in, in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 15. Matthew's account writes, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Okay, so where is this taking place? Standing where it should not be. Where is that holy place? Clearly speaking of the temple. The temple. The holy temple in Jerusalem. But those of us who have our thinking caps on this morning are, are acknowledging a small problem, right? Because this is a, uh, a prophecy in the future. Um, but there's no temple right now, right? <laughs> there hasn't been since A.D. 70 when it was destroyed. And some of you know that since A.D. 691, right, Muhammad was around uh, A.D. 600s or so, um, A.D. 691, the Islamic Dome of the Rocks, is located on the very site where the Jewish temple is supposed to be. And that dome is like the third most sacred of Muslim shrines. Supposedly it was the place where Muhammad ascended into heaven. So it's incredibly difficult for us to imagine, especially in just the political climate of of, uh, just just past decades and even now, uh, a Jewish temple being rebuilt there. So some have thought God... He's going to accomplish it somehow. He could do it somehow. Maybe through an earthquake, bring that dome down and just cause just something very extreme to happen. In any case, some way, somehow, the temple will be rebuilt, even though it seems unfathomable to us. Uh, it might be unimaginable, but um, just did anyone imagine in 1948 that Israel would become an official state, official nation, exist as a nation once again? after almost 2,000 years of that destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the Jewish people being scattered all over the place, um, almost 2,000 years ago without an official national home. And that was uh, quite a significant event that happened in history. So point is, God is going to accomplish it. In Daniel 9, 27. Daniel 9, verse 27. So going back to Daniel, just for a moment here. The second part of verse 27 It says, after he will make a firm covenant, whoever this he is, with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Okay, so that's what Jesus means when he says Daniel the prophet spoke of this abomination of desolation. He's speaking specifically of that prophecy. And I have to mention this. Okay, the, the near fulfillment of that prophecy in Daniel. Okay, so Daniel was around 500s BC, right? Uh, everyone's agreed on this. Okay, whatever their eschatology is, but in 167 BC, okay, less than 500 years after Daniel was writing, Antiochus the fourth. 
Okay? And this is told of in the apocryphal books of First and Second Maccabees. Um, there's this vivid description of this Syrian leader desecrating the Jewish temple. Okay? And this was a time of, uh, as, as one, one commentator wrote, this, the Jews' zealous resistance to Antiochus' brutal and sacrilegious tyranny. He slaughtered countless thousands of Jewish men. He sold many of their wives and children into slavery and tried to completely obliterate the Jewish religion. And this happened. He desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig, okay, which was the most filthy, unceremonially clean, unclean animal, on the altar uh, in the temple and forced the priest to eat its flesh. He then set up in the temple an idol of Zeus, okay, this pagan deity. So as, as horrible as, as that was in 167 B.C., um, it was only a preview, okay, a near fulfillment. Remember last week, those mountain peaks, right? Prophecies in Scripture sometimes are, are fulfilled in a, a near sense, and then you keep going and you look, you keep going and you see another mountain peak, that's another fulfillment. Okay, so um, this was a preview of the even greater abomination of desolation that would happen in the end time, a part of the tribulation, the second half. So um, as Daniel 9.27 reveals, this, this person, this man, he's going to end all sacrifice in the temple and commit this abomination that makes the holy place desolate, as Daniel describes, desolate and desecrated, okay, utterly detestable to the Jews. So who would do such a thing? Who would do such a thing? Well, Scripture describes this man as the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. And he's specifically called that, actually, only in 1 John 2, verse 18. Um, There's other names that uh, the the Scripture refers to him as. For example, in Daniel 7, verse 8, the Antichrist is is described as the little horn. The little horn. In the New Testament, uh, 2 Thessalonians, verses 3 and 4, He's called the man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness. And actually, I'm going to read those verses to you. Second Thessalonians three and four. Okay, Paul alerts the Thessalonian believers about this. Listen, and he's talking about this abomination that's going to happen in the future. Second Thessalonians three and four. He says the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Okay? Um, And, you know, we could read the rest of that, but we don't have time. Uh, but it goes down to verses 9 and 10 as well. So Paul speaks of this abomination that's going to happen in the future. In Revelation 13, the Antichrist is called the beast. Revelation 13, verse 17. And just as a point of interest, folks, um, in Revelation chapter 13 uh, and, and elsewhere in Revelation, it tells us of the characters of the tribulation. Okay? So the three characters are Satan, obviously, the Antichrist is the second one, and the false prophet is the third. And I was wondering if we were going to have time or not to, to cover the false prophet. Or we'll see. But um, so we might regard those three as, as an unholy trinity. 
okay, an unholy trinity. Satan is called the dragon. He's like a, a counterfeit of God the Father. The Antichrist is called the beast, like I said. He's like a, a counterfeit Messiah, counterfeit of Jesus. And the false prophet, Revelation 13, 11, he's called another beast. He's like a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so these very powerful forces are going to um, just uh, be very active in, in the tribulation and the great tribulation. So the Antichrist is known to have this great leadership ability. He's intelligent. He's skilled and empowered by Satan to solve complex problems and control different situations. Um, he has a brilliant understanding of economic and political matters. He's a militarily powerful, charismatic man, speaker. He will rule the nations and the world in total domination for three and a half years. This is what's going to be the second half of the tribulation. He gets assassinated in the middle of the trib, and um, allegedly he's raised from the dead. Okay, this is probably a deception. But when he is resurrected, he begins that total domination of all the earth. And along with him for that unpleasant ride okay, is a man called the false prophet. Okay, let me just give it to you real quick because it's involved with the Antichrist. But he's called another beast. He's called the false prophet. And he is apparently subservient to the first beast, the Antichrist. As a false prophet, he's a religious leader, a false one. But he has ability to work miracles. Some of them may be real, but empowered by Satan. Some of them probably just um, deceiving things, just like with uh, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's men, right, in, in the Exodus there. And he's going to use those to deceive the unbelieving world into worshiping the Antichrist, this abomination that happens. And Jesus mentions in, in Mark 13, our Olivet Discourse, with signs and wonders, miraculous things that are, are going on. And it's so convincing that if it was possible for them to deceive even the elect, they would. These miraculous works will probably be used to validate the false prophet's claims to be Elijah, right? The one who comes and makes the way for the Lord, Malachi chapter 4. That great and terrible day that's coming. And it's going to come in tandem with promoting the Antichrist as the true Messiah. And so Jesus warns. He says in, in Mark 13, our passage for this morning, false messiahs, false prophets. Don't be misled. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. And so this specifically happens at the midpoint of the tribulation, okay, the halfway point. The abomination of desolation occurs, and the image of the Antichrist is set up. The false prophet uses his satanic powers, his uh, miracles, wonders. He leads the world in worship of this Antichrist, and he kills those people who will not do so. I'm not going to read it, but you can read about that in Revelation 13. Revelation 13, verses 13 to 15. And there's evidence there in that chapter, in that passage, that economics and religion will be linked together somehow during that time. Many who refuse to worship the Antichrist, they're going to be killed, like I said. And others will not receive the mark of the beast. That's the 666. And which means that they will be unable to buy or sell anything, and so they're cut off from the basic necessities of life. And so, of course... When the real Messiah shows up at the end of that seven-year tribulation, um, here's what's going to happen to the Antichrist and the false prophet, right? So this is Revelation 19, verse 20. Mark it down. Revelation 19, verse 20. Jesus comes, and the beast, the Antichrist, was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Revelation 19.20. These two wicked, wicked men will become the first occupants of the eternal lake of fire. Jesus is going to hurl them alive into that lake, which burns with brimstone. A literal burning sulfur. That's their end point. And so, to conclude... Um, this sermon series uh, that was part two (laughs) being prepared for Jesus' return Um, there's there's a lot of destruction that we talked about and judgment and dark things and awful things that are going to happen but again the the point, the principle, the purpose is for us as believers whether the the tribulation or the rapture happens before in the middle or after folks, it it doesn't matter we need to be ready and we need to be prepared We need to be spiritually alert. Jesus says, behold, take heed. He says it several times in all of that discourse. That's the point. And I want to say, those of us who believe in Jesus, I think we should be encouraged and thankful to God once again. Whether it's the the pre-trib or or after, um, I think we're living in the best time of history. Okay, Because every night that we go to bed and we wake up the next morning is one day closer to the end. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know that every day that we live, we're one day closer to Jesus' return. And so, we as church-age believers, um, you know, at least in, in, our, in our understanding of, of Scripture, uh, we can be, be thankful that we're not needing to endure that suffering that's going to happen. We're going to be safe with our Lord through all of it, even if He does take us through it. Um, Again, just referring back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Whether he delivers us or not, we're going to worship him. And so there's much joy and assurance and comfort and hope there. But for those who are not yet believers in Jesus, I would say this is still good news to you because you're still breathing. You're still alive right now. You're still here. It's not too late to escape the tribulation that Jesus says is coming. But you need to act now. You need to call out to God in repentance. You need to turn to him now as your savior. You will experience his love and forgiveness and escape great suffering, eternal suffering, if you'd simply turn to Jesus Christ alone for salvation and forgiveness. But those who continue to reject his offer of eternal life are going to end up where the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan are in the lake of fire. So it's good for all of us wherever we are spiritually this morning, to know these things of the future. Without getting overly obsessed with eschatology and carried away with prophecy and trying to figure out uh, every last detail and like when when it's going to happen, we're called simply to be ready, to be prepared, and to be faithful to our great God and Savior. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your promises which you have given to your people, whether to Israel or to church-age believers, um, and even those who, who get saved in the tribulation. Thank you that Jesus is the solid rock. And his oath, his covenant, his blood supports us in the whelming flood. When all around our soul gives way and everything is crumbling around us, he then is all our hope and stay for it's on Christ the solid rock we stand all other ground is sinking sand 
We praise you, Lord Jesus, King Jesus, Jesus Messiah. We praise you this morning and look forward to opportunities you'll give to us uh, to be found ready and faithful, for you are worthy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.